0: package being delivered
1: As smartphones have become ubiquitous gadgets in everyone's pockets and purses, criminals just like the rest of us have moved online, and behind them the cops and feds have followed you know, earlier, we showed you how sophisticated
0: cybercriminals are getting millions of
1: customer credit cards stolen.
2: And today, some of the most prolific drug suppliers use what's called the dark web.
1: According to a report last year, cybercriminals stole 16.8 billion dollars, and 30 percent of U.S. consumers were victims of a data breach. And it's not just run-of-the-mill credit card or identity theft fraud. Terrorist and extremist groups now organize online. Drug dealers sell their products in hard-to-locate online markets. And criminals steal millions of dollars in cryptocurrency by hijacking phone numbers of investors and high-profile Bitcoiners. So what are the authorities doing to stop them? Today, we're talking to Elizabeth Roper, the chief of the Cybercrime Bureau in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Roper has led investigations in dark web drug dealing busts, sim hijacking, and other cybercrimes. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So thank you for coming down to the Vice Studios.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, not, not often we get the government in here without uh, <laughs> by invitation. So it's thank you. not often
0: you. we get the invitation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of problems with the authorities at times, so I've, I'm... Uh, Fair I'm, enough. Thank you for coming in under these circumstances. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, cybersecurity and hacking, it's kind of gone through this whole transition over the last few years of, you know, at one point it's just sort of these scary hackers with, you know, uh, hoodies on in their parents' basement. And, you know, it's, it's gone through an evolution. And now I think we're getting to a point where we're all accepting, finally, that cybersecurity and cybercrime is not something that's sci-fi, but it's a real thing. It, it actually happens. Now, I guess what I want to ask you about is how has that evolved over the last decade in terms of the authorities and the New York DA's office actually looking at cybercrime and then also convicting people.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think one interesting thing about the perspective of our office, meaning a local prosecutor's office, as opposed to a U.S. attorney's office, the FBI, you know, where our jurisdiction is, is really Manhattan, right? And we work uh, with a number of agencies. We do some cases in-house. We do some cases with the NYPD, um, we work, We do work with federal partners, often the Secret Service, uh, Homeland, so occasionally the FBI, but but we're really a local office. And so when we see cybercrime and when we talk about cybercrime, we're kind of seeing really every part of like the supply chain um, in terms of the information that's being compromised and kind of monetized via these cyber networks, right? We're seeing... The kind of end users who are going into retail institutions in Manhattan, financial institutions in Manhattan, and using, for example, uh, identity theft victims' social security number to open a bank account, using a stolen credit card number to buy a MacBook, um, you know, what have you. Um, And then we also see, obviously, kind of the step up from that, the recruiters who are going out on Instagram who are recruiting people to engage in this kind of conduct. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, we're also working up the chain and seeing the more sophisticated cyber criminals who are operating with a high degree of anonymity, who are monetizing that information once it's been breached, who are writing the malware that's responsible for the breach. Um, So we're kind of looking at this whole universe of people. And, And you're right, there's... Kind of a veneer of mystery and, and anonymity, particularly with respect to the more sophisticated actors, and so it's a it's a real challenge to unmask those people.
1: And, and you know, you, it's funny when you say it's, it's, you're very local in Manhattan because it's like when I think local police, I think I'm from <laughs> Orleans, Ontario, Canada, and I I imagine that the Ottawa police are not as sophisticated at this as you are. And but also because you deal with everyone, I mean, everyone comes to the city.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think I think we do have a pretty sophisticated operation for a local prosecutor's office, for sure. Um, and part of that is you're exactly right. Manhattan is a hub of finance. It's a hub of retail. It's a hub for innovation. So, you know, we have a, a big tech community here. Um, and with that comes all the types of crime that are associated with those businesses. Um I think another kind of advantage that we have, that we're lucky to have, is that Manhattan, for the past several years, has had really low violent crime. So our office has been able to focus a lot of resources on this particular threat. Right? We've we've really the DA um, has been really supportive um, and kind of cutting edge in terms of devoting resources to both the prosecution of cybercrime and also uh, the prevention of this kind of crime. Kind of recognizing that a crime prevented is obviously a lot better than one prosecuted.
1: You know, you're you're within the government, and you're seeing it from their perspective. And I often wonder, is there sort of that generational change where it's no longer sort of this boomer generation of looking at the Internet, like this very spectacular, weird thing they don't really understand and sort of seeing it as, oh, this is day-to-day life. Cybercrime is simply just crime, and we all have to be kind of literate within this space.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think... Um One of the cool things about our office is you have a really multi-generational group of people. You've got people who have been there for 40 years, and then you've got people who are right out of law school. And I think among everyone, there's certainly a recognition that, quote-unquote, cyber is kind of a part of every case. Um, It used to be the case that my bureau would field every question or request having to do with anything that was sort of on the Internet. Like, how do I go onto Facebook, or how do I you know, investigate someone who's using email to in, in furtherance of criminal activity. And I think now there's really a recognition that um, that's such a fundamental part of every case that we all kind of have to be literate in that regard. Um, and I think there's an increasing acceptance that just these technologies are here to stay, and that's not a bad thing. You know, cryptocurrency is not a bad thing, um, you know iPhones aren't a bad thing these are all just technologies that are kind of part of our everyday lives and have a lot of good applications and we just have to figure out how to how to investigate crime in this new space
1: does that ever do you ever have any of those those moments where you want to get into the iphone and you can't cuz somebody tried to do that recently
0: somebody tried to do that uh,
1: with the author- or the authorities tried to do that recently. oh really well FBI right <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know our forensic lab does the digital forensics for the entire office. It's not just for my bureau, although they sit in my bureau. So I do get a lot of kind of visibility into what's coming into that lab. Um, Increasingly, I don't think this would be surprising to, to anyone, but it's increasingly mobile devices, right? We're getting fewer and fewer computers, more and more phones. And yeah, sometimes they're locked. Sometimes it's hard to get into them. Um, sometimes they're not. There's a fascinating new report out on how the FBI managed to crack into that iPhone of one of the San Bernardino shooters, paying professional hackers to help. And that's, yeah, that's a challenge for us. It's one of many.
1: Are you aware that you have to purchase any software in order to get access to those those phones? Or is this something you do in-house?
0: Uh, both. So um, I would say the bulk of our work is is done in-house, right? But we also, like I think most kind of larger law enforcement agencies use certain software sometimes to get around, you know, to get into mobile devices. Obviously, it's always accompanied by a court-ordered warrant or consent of the device's user. Uh, But yeah, if in those circumstances we've gone to a judge, we've said, hey, there's probable cause to look inside this phone, the judge says, yes, I agree, and we still can't get in. Um, then yeah, sometimes we'll employ like one or more, I guess what you would call workarounds or softwares to, to try to assist.
1: Do you ever get any pushback from the actual companies themselves, the producers of these software, the, these, these devices?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, Apple has obviously sort of been out there a lot saying, we're not going to assist law enforcement in getting access to our devices. There's been a lot of back and forth over that. I think the reality is they've kind of made their decisions with respect to how their technology is going to work. And so we're kind of in the position of doing what we can to get that evidence, right? When you're in the perspective of someone who's trying to investigate a case, you're never going to just say, oh, there's this potential treasure trove of information that would help me kind of get to the truth. And I'm just going to say, oh, well, I can't look at it. So you're going to try, obviously, within the bounds Um, of what you're authorized to do to to access it. Is
1: this seen as kind of a win-win in in that way, where Apple gets to keep its privacy first face and you guys get to actually get the information you want?
0: I don't know. I mean, this is just my opinion. Um, I think, look, the privacy aspect is obviously incredibly important. I think the downside is that you have companies making these decisions, right? These are businesses that are making decisions for business reasons, arguably, when the outcomes are really public policy outcomes and, and should, in my mind, be decided by lawmakers and not by private industry.
1: And there is a giant debate surrounding that. There sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, I mean, this, I'm, usually, I'm sure you probably get this question a lot, but what is one of the more crazy things you've seen in your tenor?
0: Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, we've seen kind of a whole range of things. We, we handle a lot of... Um, it's primarily kind of financially motivated cybercrime, right? So identity theft, bank fraud. Um, we handle some kind of more straight-up cybercrime like the online theft of intellectual property or other data via some kind of intrusion. Um, we handle some online child exploitation cases, um, some cyber stalking cases. Obviously, those can be a little bit crazy. Um, We had yesterday a a relatively large case announced where... my bureau was able to identify and take down three New Jersey residents who are operating a pretty large-scale narcotics operation. And that was a first for me because we don't typically in the cybercrime and Identity Theft Bureau prosecute a lot of uh, big drug cases. But this was a case where these particular defendants, um, as it's alleged at least at this stage, um, were operating a darknet sort of storefront on the dream market and also a specific site that was accessible via Tor uh, to sell Alprazolam, which is Xanax, um, ketamine, and and possibly some other controlled substances. And they were, you know, using the anonymity sort of afforded by that technology, accepting Bitcoin and then laundering the proceeds. And it was via the money laundering angle that we sort of came into it, And we're able to take down this pretty significant drug organization.
1: So how do you go about intercepting the evidence you need in order to build this case? I mean, is this, I'm assuming that you are not doing this. I'm assuming that you've got a team of what forensic type people that will then do it for you?
0: Yeah, so our bureau, the the bureau I supervise, is actually a really dynamic group of people, which is one of the things that allows us to be successful in this space. Obviously, we have attorneys. We have about a dozen attorneys who come with, you know, different backgrounds themselves. Some of them are former narcotics prosecutors. Some are former um, street crime prosecutors. But in addition to that, we do have a forensic lab, a pretty state-of-the-art forensic lab that's staffed by uh, about a dozen forensic technicians, um, and those guys are really integral to the work that we do. They're kind of like the X Men. I think they're like each one of them has a different sort of specialty, whether it's you know getting into encrypted devices or doing vehicle forensics or doing forensics on you know Android devices versus Apple devices. So that work is really important in terms of building these types of cases. And then we also have a team of dedicated sworn investigators. So essentially like detectives, but people who work specifically for the district attorney's office. And they'll usually be the ones who do the kind of work that you're describing, right? Like they'll, they'll go online and conduct an undercover purchase of contraband, whether it's drugs or personal identifying information. Um, and so that's typically how we kind of get that information.
1: So one burning question that I, I wanted to ask you, and you personally, I want your personal take on this okay. in the position you're in. So you get on the MTA, the, the New York subway system. Do you log into the free Wi-Fi?
0: <laughs> I would not log into the free Wi-Fi. You
1: would not. Lo- you would not log into the free Wi-Fi. Why is that?
0: You know, I'm not. I'm not a technical person, so I can't talk through the ins and outs of kind of the cyber hygiene decision of of doing that versus not. Um, I've just seen enough cases of of people being compromised to such a devastating. Effect from the MTA Wi-Fi. No, no, no. Sorry. No, (laughs) I don't mean to malign the MTA Wi-Fi specifically. It's
1: okay. I will for you. It's (laughs) it's totally cool. I hate it, but anyway, go on.
0: (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Any any open Wi-Fi, I'm just terrified of. Um, You just say no. Do it. Yeah.
1: How much? I mean, honestly, because I think to myself too, the amount of hotels here. How much are those targets for cyber criminals in terms of? Because clearly, you're getting. A very international, you know clientele. Clientel. Yeah, Th- those must be absolute honeypots. Not that I didn't think that hotel Wi-Fi was as clean as like a ho- <laughs> as a hotel hot tub.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's probably the exact right analogy. Um, <laughs> we've seen, yeah, we've seen hotels being used um, for that purpose. You know, both um, by people looking to take advantage of the open Wi-Fi and, and uh, conduct some kind of intrusion or learn information about a target. And we've also seen it used by criminals looking to kind of mask who they are and what they're doing. Um, and that's probably more frequently what we encounter, right? We're trying to figure out, well, who was doing this bad act using the IP address of of such and such business? And so we're we're typically trying to kind of unravel the thread from that end.
1: Now, you don't have to tell me who, but has there ever been anything surrounding Trump Tower?
0: Um, we—that's an interesting question. Has <laughs> there ever been anything surrounding Trump Tower? <laughs> um, we don't have any open investigations that, that touch on Trump Tower.
1: Right, because there was some cyber activity there, I think, sometime in 2016. And it sure, would have fallen within yeah. your jurisdiction, so I thought maybe—
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a fascinating story, um— I've read a lot about it, Um, but yeah, we don't have anything active um, with respect to that incident.
1: Are you seeing any trends right now that you see as something that people should be aware of in terms of falling prey to a cyber criminal within this city that you think?
0: Yeah, I think I think there are a number of things that are kind of trending right now in the in the cybercrime space. I mean, you guys have covered the SIM swapping phenomenon, I think, and that's something that we're certainly seeing a spike in. Um, I used to get those complaints you know, years ago when people were doing SIM swaps targeting kind of the OG handles or, you know, traditional financial Uh, Gain, but with the advent of crypto and the increasing popularity of it, the increasing sort of legitimacy of 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 cryptocurrencies, I think we've seen a huge uptick in SIM swapping cases. Um, You know, partially because I think you have a lot of people in Manhattan who are active in that space. and also just the ease with which it can be done. And I think people are sort of realizing that and and taking advantage of it. So that's something that makes me nervous just because it is such a devastating thing to have happen and it's so easy to do. Um, Another thing that we see all the time that we're just getting inundated with are what people in kind of law enforcement call business email compromise cases. So that's a type of fraud where someone will breach one or more email addresses within a financial transaction or a real estate transaction or something like that. They'll learn enough about the transaction that's happening uh, to sort of be able to socially engineer one or even both parties. And so, for example, you know, if you're my real estate attorney and I'm about to buy a house, a fraudster might breach your account, send me an email either directly from your account or from a spoofed account that looks like it and, you know kind of mimic your phrasing or the, you know the way that we typically correspond and say hey the plan has changed instead of bringing a cashier's check to the closing just wire your down payment to this account Whoa. and it mm. happens a lot with businesses but we've also seen it happen to individuals like in this real estate example and it can just be incredibly devastating because they're entirely wiped out and unlike credit card fraud where typically you're, you have some coverage from your credit card company. These are transactions that the victims are authorizing. And so the banks typically won't.
1: So you're never getting that money back?
0: Not usually. Wow. Yeah. So that's an incredibly problematic type of crime that we're seeing a ton of right now.
1: Obviously, New York City criminal syndicates are well known around the world. Um, The various entities that they've come in. (laughs) Uh, How are they leveraging cybercrime right now? Like, I'm thinking of the typical players. How do they use it? Or are they at all?
0: The typical players meaning? You know, I'm
1: thinking like cartels. I'm thinking Italian mafia. I'm thinking, you know, the various communities of gangsters.
0: Okay. And how
1: are they leveraging this stuff?
0: So I would say what we see is more um, kind of street crime organizations leveraging this type of stuff. So we have a lot of defendants who are current or former gang members who, you know, maybe even have long records for violent crime, who suddenly will find themselves running an identity theft organization and going on tour onto like Riscata or Jokerstash or one of these higher profile carding shops, um, buying credit card numbers and sending people out to use them. And I think there's been a realization among criminal organizations that this is a much lower exposure, higher value type of crime to do. And so that's something that we see a lot. I, I haven't seen, uh, you know, more kind of traditional organized crime in the cybercrime space, although it wouldn't surprise me to learn that that's going on.
1: So you mentioned earlier that sometimes you work with in, or national agency partners. Yeah. Some DHS, FBI. I'm assuming probably CIA and some other groups. NSA, maybe?
0: Well, we don't really have a national security focus, right? So we're working more more with the law enforcement side of, of things. So while NSA and CIA are focused on national security issues, primarily we're focused on traditional law enforcement. So crime that happens usually in the United States or that affects the United States and then can be prosecuted um, in the U.S. So we haven't really worked much with national security uh, organizations. I mean, our interests are, are, I don't want to say even necessarily aligned, you know, we, we will sometimes share knowledge about, you know, oh, did you, like, have you sort of realized that this tool exists or, you know, this information is is kind of out there. But typically, no, we're working with traditional law enforcement.
1: Because I'm just thinking, I mean, this is New York City. You have so many people coming in and out, including some of the members of those agencies. And they, all those agencies have offices in this city. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, you have the UN here. Yeah. Right? So, I, you know, I, then they have the UN summit every year. And this is when traditional law enforcement locks this city down. In such an insane way, I can only imagine that you somehow have a connection to that, or not a connection, but you know it enters your orbit when that happens. When you have these huge summits, is there any counter espionage, counterintelligence sort of side to the work that you do?
0: No, I mean we're not, you know, Mayberry. Obviously, we're a, we're a pretty sophisticated operation in the cybercrime space, but no, we're not doing. We're not doing espionage cases. We're not really looking at state actors. We're not um, investigating any kind of, like, nation-state attacks or activity or anything like that. Um, It's it's a lot more more traditional. And by traditional, you know, I don't mean unsophisticated. We've certainly prosecuted uh, foreign nationals who are conducting attacks or committing crimes that touch New York City. Um, but it's mostly financially motivated cybercrime, right? It's not espionage. It's not politically motivated, for the most part. Um, it's usually fi- kind of financial in nature.
1: How did you get involved with this? I mean, did you think you were going to be doing cybercrime? Do you have any background in that? Not that I'm trying to, you know,
0: <laughs> not trying. To with call all, me with
1: up. all due respect, yeah. With all, I mean, I'm not. I have no technical. I, I didn't take any computer science in university either, and. Yeah, I'm, no. And I, my friend Lorenzo, right here, he didn't either. Is that right? He was a lawyer.
0: Wow, one of you. the lamest. Uh, <laughs> of the professions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I call you guys vampires, but let's you know we'll we'll play we'll play nice.
0: We can t- <laughs> talk about that later. <laughs> um, no, I don't have a technical background at all. I uh, you know I majored in English and French, but I came to the DA's office and starting out, almost everyone handles kind of every type of crime that that comes in. And I personally found the kind of complex financial crimes and cyber crimes to be among the more interesting because they involved a lot of proactive investigation as opposed to street crime where they kind of come in the door and all the investigation is done and you're just moving on to, to prosecute the case. So in my bureau, we do kind of most of the work is upfront proactive investigative work. So we're trying to kind of put together those puzzles and see, you know, if we can kind of put someone, as they say, behind the keyboard or figure out kind of what the distribution network is, what the money laundering network is. And I just have always found that really interesting um, and have been really lucky that our office is incredibly supportive of this kind of work and have gotten the opportunity to work on more and more kind of cool cases uh, in this space. So it's been great.
1: Can Can you talk in broad strokes about some of the investigations you have going on right now?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I think I mentioned that we've seen kind of an uptick in sim swapping and we have one active case that's um, been a little bit publicized where we had a, a 20-year-old Ohio man um, doing sim swaps of Manhattan residents and others, as it's alleged in, in the complaint, because that case is still pending. Um and we have a handful of other sort of similar investigations where Manhattan residents have been targeted in similar schemes. I could talk a little bit about a few recent historical cases that are that are not active, but that might be, you know, interesting. Um, one case I think that illustrates this kind of like breadth of the conduct that we see was a case against originally 17 defendants, but only three of them went to trial. The trial happened in 2013. Um, It was a trial against, uh, well, it was an indictment against a business called Western Express and then a number of people who were either employed by that business or used it. And this was in the days of pre-cryptocurrency digital currencies, So things like e-gold and web money. And Western Express was a business that uh, essentially acted like an exchange for those um, digital currencies. And you had people in the New York area who were using that business to, pay carters in Ukraine and Russia to get compromised credit card information. And then that money was being laundered kind of all over the world. So we were able to identify and prosecute both these kind of local people who were buying this information and then using it, you know, to buy cars, to buy clothes, to buy whatever and, and sell stuff on eBay and kind of enrich themselves. And then we were also able to identify and prosecute um, the kind of credit card, what they call dump spender, right, who was selling credit card information online. And in in our case, he had sold about 100,000 credit card numbers that had been used fraudulently. Um, And that person we were able to apprehend in Greece and extradite to New York and try and convict. So that's kind of an example of, I think, what I'm talking about of, like, this whole ecosystem kind of converging right. in Manhattan.
1: Yeah, oh, it, I mean, I can, I can imagine, I mean, that's, I'm, the nature of crime Right. at some point,
0: if it's, it's international,
1: is going to end up in, in Manhattan. Exactly. Uh, was, that, was that a Greek national?
0: He was a Ukrainian national um, who we had identified and we were able to learn that he was traveling to Greece. And I think you see that a lot, right? People who are making a lot of money conducting cybercrime, they want to have fun. They want to spend the money. They want to go on vacation. And so he was traveling to Greece and we were able to work with international authorities and federal authorities to apprehend him there.
1: Do you see a lot of actors in Ukraine kind of involved with cybercrime here in New York?
0: Yeah. So we have part of our bureau um, is the cybercrime intelligence unit. And so that's a small but very specialized group of people who are conducting these really long term proactive investigations Um, into the types of criminals that I just described, right? People who are traditionally overseas, who are, um, you know, kind of this elite group of of cyber criminals who are conducting breaches, monetizing the information that's obtained via breaches. And I don't want to say those people are necessarily located in Eastern Europe, but they're all frequently Russian-speaking um, and so we found that that's a that's a skill set that's important to have, um, because that has sort of emerged as like the language um, of trust in that community. Hmm.
1: That's uh, that, that's I've definitely heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you saying Russian hackers have been in the news recently? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I read that somewhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the latest in the DNC email scandal is that the FBI suspects the hack was perpetrated by Russian intelligence in an effort to elect Donald Trump. It's like even SNL is making tired jokes about <laughs> Russian hackers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny. It's, it has been in the news recently for, for the kind of um, splashy, politically motivated activity that we've been seeing, but... Um, from the perspective of of financially motivated activity, it's obviously this kind of thing has been going on for a long time. So another sort of case where we saw this kind of convergence of transnational and local cybercrime was a case where um, StubHub had been breached and they, they identified thousands of user accounts that had been victimized by account takeovers. So essentially compromised passwords and usernames had been used to log in and take over thousands of users' accounts and purchase tickets using those accounts, right? So either using the stored credit card information that you have on file with StubHub or using credit card information that had been stolen in some other way. And millions of dollars of tickets were purchased and, and then resold. And what the investigation found was that these local individuals were responsible for reselling the tickets Um, at a much lower rate and kind of laundering the proceeds. But they were getting instructions and getting the tickets in the first place from a Russian national uh, who was actually conducting the account takeovers, who was obtaining the compromised credentials, conducting the account takeovers, buying the tickets at kind of market value, and then passing them along for resale. And the money was being laundered in the United States, um, in Canada, in the U.K., In Germany, and so that was actually a a case that we collaborated both with the city of London Police on, with the RCMP in Canada. Um, My best friends, is that right? (laughs) Yeah, no, we're
1: actually we're in court together. I've been, I've been, been, no, like right now, oh, I got a court date. When this comes out, I'll be in court.
0: Wait, were you the money launderer in Canada who was? uh, I was, yeah. (laughs) Oh my god, I am
1: secretly worlds collide, amazing at hacking really good at it,
0: I believe it <laughs> um, yeah, so that was that was another really kind of cool example of working with international partners with local partners to um to bring down not just the kind of end users of the information, but the the higher value targets, right? Who are who are actually mm-hmm. breaching accounts and and um, compromising the information in the first place?
1: I could be mistaken, and my mind's a little fuzzy on this, but I think the Mueller investigation, the team actually had somebody who was uh, very proficient in investigating Russian cybercrime. I would believe so that. So yeah, because I think because I mean, my, it's been my experience that there's a lot of bleeding in from. Russian cybercrime into into intelligence. It's sort of this ecosystem, um, which I'm sure would be useful if you were the Mueller investigation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well, thank you for coming down and speaking with us.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: This week's cyber was recorded and edited by Dean White, produced by Lorenzo Franceschi-Pikirai, and hosted by me.